A few years ago, someone saw me and caught me at a moment uh, that was not my best. I was angry about a situation, and my anger got the best of me. Now, when this person observed this in me, they were surprised because they had never seen me mad. They were so surprised that uh, they took up the courage to come and see me after and tell me how surprised they were to see me angry. And they said, Pastor, we are so surprised. We cannot imagine that you would get angry. I said, really? Why would you think that? He said, well, because you're a pastor. Pastors can't be angry. I said, can I explain to you something? I am a normal person just like you and me. I do get angry, and sometimes I explode. I'm sorry if I have disappointed you and have shattered your image of me. And I remember that incident because it is like so many of us today. We have a preconceived notion of how someone should be like because of their position. We think that all doctors are super intelligent. I've met a few who I have no idea how they passed the board. We believe that all attorneys are well-spoken, sharp on their feet. I have met some, unfortunately, that I don't want defending me. We have a preconceived notion of someone based on their profession for how they should be. And that often translates in our thinking of how God should be. You see, we've all been taught ever since we were young that God is a God of love. He absolutely is. God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy. And He absolutely is a gracious God and a merciful God. But sometimes in this image we have of God in our minds, this perfect example of unconditional love, we cannot imagine that God would be mad. Angry to the extent where He will destroy nations and empires and people. We become tunnel vision about who God is Strictly, solely, that He is a God of love and grace. And yet we forget that the Bible also teaches that He is an angry God. How in the world do we correlate how a loving God can be rightfully wrathful? Is God allowed to get angry? Is God allowed to get mad? And if He's angry and mad, does it mean He can't be a loving God? This tension and others are what we want to explore this morning and in the subsequent weeks as we begin a new sermon series entitled Love and War, Seeing God's Love Amidst His Rightful Wrath. The different expressions of God's love in the midst of His rightful wrath. And we're going to be looking specifically at the book of Nahum and the book of Habakkuk these next few weeks. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Nahum. If you are new to the Bible or you've never, ever read the book of Nahum, it is an amazing book. And we're going to be studying this book verse by verse these next few weeks, followed by the book of Habakkuk. The book of Nahum is in the Old Testament. It is in the Minor Prophet section. It is after the book of Jonah and Micah. So if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, it is after that. It's probably a few pages there. And once you turn to it, would you put your bookmark uh, in your Bible or your Bible ribbon? 
there, we are going to be in the book of Nahum and then the book of Habakkuk in these next few weeks. Now, to serve as a background for this book, verse 1 of chapter 1 is quite clear. Look what it says. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Bible tells us that this book is a book of prophecy, the prophetic word of God against the nation of Assyria, represented by her capital city of Nineveh. It was a wicked city, and historically the city of Nineveh shook her hand against the Lord God and oppressed God's people. It was a very large city, a city they thought was impregnable, estimated to have a population of over 150,000 people, as the book of Jonah tells us, taking more than three days to walk around this massive city. It was that large. In the historical context of Nahum, the Assyrians and their armies had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel composed uh, and comprised of the ten tribes of Israel that broke away after the kingship of Solomon. Those who heeded the prophet's call up north, sent by God, moved south to avoid the impending destruction that was coming. And so the armies of Assyria were now trying to fully subjugate the southern kingdom of Judah. Most likely this was under the time of King Manasseh, who was the father of Josiah, and we studied these kings of Judah in a previous series. The Assyrians thought, like the north, they would be able to easily subjugate the south. The south would easily capitulate. But God sent the prophet Nahum to them, to a people living in the south, to encourage them. To tell them, don't worry, God was going to punish the nation of Assyria and destroy the city of Nineveh. It is in this context that God is going to reveal Himself to His people and to us. You see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. God does not change And how God acts and how He reveals Himself in the past is the very same God who never changes and how He acts and reveals Himself to us today. So how do the prophecies against Assyria reveal to us today what God is like? Nahum will do so with three implied questions in verses 2 to 8. The first question, you may want to jot this down, number one. The first question that Nahum implicitly asks his readers is the question, does God have a right to be angry? Does God have a right to be angry? And this question is answered in verse 2. Look with me. God is a jealous God. God is jealous. And the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. This is certainly not one of those verses you memorize when you're a child, but this is true. You see, Nahum reveals God from the onset as a jealous God, a God who is jealous for His people, the people of Israel. What is He jealous of? He's jealous of their well-being. Because they were being taken advantage of and trampled upon by the Assyrians. Now remember, I've taught you this before, that jealousy is okay. 
if you are jealous for something that is rightfully yours. Jealousy is okay. It is actually scriptural. If you are jealous for something that is rightfully yours. But if you are jealous for something that is not rightfully yours, then it is sin because we call that coveting. So you can be rightfully jealous of your wife. You can be rightfully jealous of your children. You can be rightfully jealous of that which is rightfully yours. And that's why God is rightfully jealous for His own people. If I were to tell you God is a jealous God, you should say, Amen. He absolutely is. It is within His right. Now, because He is jealous for the welfare of His people, look at verse 2. God is pictured as one who will avenge. The Lord avenges. There it is again. The Lord avenges. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries. To avenge is to punish. To avenge is to push back. God is going to do so to the people who have hurt His people. God will avenge those who take a stand in opposition to Him and what He stands for. Now some of us may have this notion that when we think of God being a vengeful God, that uh, He's a mean God. That all He ever wants to do is get back at us. And so we touch Him a little, and He punches back. You know, it's like when, a, uh, when two siblings in your home are fighting. It's always the second one who hits the first one. And you ask the second one, why did you hit the first one? The answer, He touched me. I got Him back. That is not how God retaliates. That is not the emphasis of his vengeance. You see, his vengeance is not because he is mean. God is not petty like that. His vengeance is a rightful vengeance because someone has done something wrong against his standard of righteousness. For example, let's say that someone has killed someone else in a premeditated murder. You and I would have no problem with the authority of this government to avenge the death of the innocent and to put upon the fullest extent of the law the murderer. In fact, if the government did nothing, if the judicial system failed, if the killer got away with the murder, we would say that's not fair. That is the same idea with God's vengeance. He is rightfully avenging the wrongs. We should be exclaiming it is unfair if He did nothing. If God did nothing, if God wasn't vengeful, we would say He is unfair and yet God is a fair God. It is His right. He is expected that He will take care of those who oppose His righteousness and those who oppress His people. Now, not only is God going to avenge, look what the Bible says. The Bible tells us he is angry. He is furious. Now remember, anger is not a sin. Jesus was angry. Anger is not a sin. It is the actions caused by our anger that is often the basis of why we sin. But anger is not a sin, especially if there is cause. We call it righteous anger. In verse 2, it tells us, That he's angry with those who are his enemies. The implication is those who have done wrong, those who have wronged him. They deserve for God to be angry at them. 
You see, God isn't arbitrary in his anger. He didn't wake up one morning and says, you know what? I'm just going to be really angry with this group of people. I don't like Stephen Tan, so you know what? I'm going to be angry at him. His anger, the Bible tells us, verse 2, is always directed at his adversaries. Those who oppose his truth and righteousness. And the ferocity of his anger, as seen through his wrath, is reserved for his enemies. That should be a warning call to those who have not yet received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Because, my friends, if you have not dealt with your sin problem through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you are God's enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Even if you are a really, really, really good person, if you have even sinned once, then unless that sin problem is taken care of, then you are an enemy of God. You see, people ask me all the time, Pastor, I cannot imagine how a very good person will be eternally punished if they don't accept Jesus Christ. And my answer to them is this. It doesn't matter how good you are. Unless your sin problem is dealt with, you are an enemy of God. And the Bible is very clear. Enemies of God experience His rightful wrath. As an enemy of God, His righteous anger is reserved for you. A picture of a God who is angry and furious is not the picture that gives us the warm fuzzies. But it is an anger that is fully justified. An anger that is righteous. You need to understand that. Does God have a right to be angry? Absolutely. You know, when I get angry, and I often get angry, my children will sometimes ask me, Daddy, why are you angry? So I'll explain to them why I'm angry. And sometimes when I tell them why I'm angry, when I actually think about the reason I'm angry, I actually stop becoming angry because the reason is so dumb. Well, you know, kids, I'm angry because my food is cold. They just kind of look at you like, really? Oh, yeah, that is a kind of a dumb reason to get angry. Well, I'm angry because I have to eat leftovers. I'm angry because my wife is late. I'm angry because I don't get my way. I'm angry because I'm just having a bad day, and I'm afforded a bad day anger every now and then. Now, I want you to think about that. If you ever used any of those reasons and whatever other reasons you use to get angry, do you ever wonder how dumb the reason for your getting angry in the first place was? Now, if you were to ask God why he's angry, his reasons are fully justified. He'll tell you, you know why I'm angry? I'm angry because the people I have saved have disobeyed me. I'm angry because the people that I love have adulterated themselves to other gods. I'm angry because they ignore me. They take advantage of me. I'm angry because my people take me for granted. They belittle me. They don't respect me. They willfully disobey my commands, which is for their good. Those are the reasons I'm angry. Can any of you suggest to God, chill, chill, Relax, God. Nothing for you to get angry about. No. Because all of the reasons of why he gets angry are justified. That question is answered here in verse 2.
The second question implied to reveal the character of God is the question, is God's power limited because He doesn't act immediately? Is God's power limited because He doesn't act immediately? Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. You see, the people of Nahum's time, the people of Judah, may be wondering, perhaps, perhaps God's power is limited because He doesn't seem to be doing anything. Maybe God can't deal with the great Assyrian armies from the east. He lets them run wild. Nathan, Nahum wants us to know something. He wants us to know something loud and clear. Look at verse 3. God is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. And would you circle that conjunction word and? The Lord is slow to anger and, and what? Great in power. The slowness of how God deals with something, the slowness of His anger, should in no way cause you to take Him for granted. Just because God isn't acting now, doesn't mean he cannot handle the situation. It only means he has yet to deal with it in his own perfect time. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Let me give you an example. When my two boys were about three or four years old, one of the things they loved to do was they'd love to go into our room and jump on our bed, play on our bed. And sometimes I'd be lying uh, on our bed, uh, reading or doing something. And they would bound into the room and they would jump on the bed and they would walk on my back. Uh, and I didn't mind, it was a free massage. Um, and uh, they would just play and I'd just ignore them, I was busy. And what would they play? They would pretend that uh, I was the giant they had defeated. Um, they would play uh, the game where they slayed the big daddy dragon. I just kind of sit there, or excuse me, lay there. And they begin to poke and tickle me, and I, I wouldn't mind. They'd even yell stuff like, we beat you, Daddy, we got you. When it was time for them to go to bed, or when I needed to get up, before they left, I needed to remind them something. I needed to remind them who was the most powerful after they've had their fun. And before they left for bed, or before I had to get up, I would in one sweeping move, grab them, wrestle them, and then pin them down on the bed. And I'll ask them, who's the strongest in the family? And they would have to admit, with a bit of a chuckle, of course, daddy, daddy. It's a picture of how we deal with God. God is slow to anger. And because He's slow to anger, we have the propensity to step all over Him as much as we like, we push him around. But never underestimate his power when he chooses to act. In fact, honestly, we should be very glad that our God is a patient God, that he is slow to anger. Why? Because if God wasn't slow to anger, most all of us would not make it to our 18th birthday. Do you think about that? If every time we sinned, and every time we talked back to our parents, and every time we lied and we cheated and we had lustful thoughts, if God had punished us at that moment according to the full punishment that we deserve, 
none of us would have survived until our 18th birthday. But praise God, He is slow to anger that we are living today as we are. But because of that, we shouldn't take Him for granted. We are reminded that He will act. Look what the Bible tells us in verse 3. And will not at all acquit the wicked. Even though God is slow to act, the wicked will not get away with what they do. In fact, that's why there are judgments in the Bible. There are judgments for both Christians and non-believers. The Christians will all undergo the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The unbelievers of all ages will go through the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, where then they will be thrown into the lake of fire. God does not acquit the wicked. It is an aged-old question of why the wicked prosper in this world today. Why do the wicked get away with so much? And we're going to look further into this question when we study the book of Habakkuk. But understand now, they may prosper on earth, but their wickedness will not be forgotten. Now to remind us of the power of God, look at verse 3 to 5. The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before Him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at His presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Lest you forget the power of the Lord, these descriptions in verses 3 to 5 reminds us that you should not provoke Him to act because the greatness of His power will be displayed. The whirlwind and the storms speak of His ferocity. In fact, He's so powerful when we look at the amazing clouds of the air, they are to Him like we treat dust when we step on them. The imagery that God is so powerful that He just steps on the clouds. When I read this verse, I thought about the Battle of Dunkirk. If you're familiar with the story of the Battle of Dunkirk in World War II, it's an amazing story. It's featured in two movies that are out today. The movie Dunkirk or The Darkest Hour, both great movies. It spoke of a time when the lightning-fast German army had attacked Western Europe and because of their lightning speed had trapped in a pincer move 300,000 British and Allied men in Dunkirk. They were almost fully captured. And if they were to be captured, almost all of Europe would fall onto the German army. The men were hopeless. They were on the beach of Dunkirk. They were trying to get across the English Channel to safety on the British Isle. Just a few kilometers away, they could even see the coast of Dover. But the problem was the British couldn't send out their naval fleet because the Germans controlled the air. The Luftwaffe had air superiority. And they tried a few times, but every time the ships came to retrieve these men, uh, the German Air Force sank these ships. 700 plus ships had been gathered ready to receive this man, but they could not because every day it was a cloudless day. The Air Force could see these Navy ships. 
But in what is referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk, suddenly, out of the blue, days of cloudless days, suddenly, on that particular day, it was a very cloudy day where the planes, the German planes, could not see the British Navy ships. Out of nowhere, as if God snapped His finger and suddenly it became very cloudy. And on that day, 300,000 men were brought to safety to fight Hitler a few years later. No one can say that this was not an act of God. You can look throughout history where it seems suddenly God's hand was seen through His act of nature that is the power of the sovereign God. In fact, verse 4 and 5 talks about the power of God where with one word He causes the sea and the rivers to dry up. Now we know the many stories of how God parted great bodies of water like the Jordan River or the Red Sea. But somehow we can't experience it today. The reason we often don't think about the power of God to control nature is because we have access to all of the essentials of life. When we turn on the faucet, water comes out. We have access to the good things of life. And so we never think about what happens when God disciplines when He uses nature. But if you've been following the news lately, I don't think any of you would want to go to Cape Town, South Africa. There in this major modern city, more modern than ours, they are counting down towards day zero. What's day zero? Day zero is a day when no more water will flow through the water system in their pipes. More than four million people of Cape Town the second largest city in South Africa will no longer have water. And the last time I checked yesterday, day zero was set for April 16. On April 16, four million people will not have water. There's severe water rationing. You can't shower more than two times a week, no longer than two minutes, because of a lack of rainfall and drought these many years. You ask the people of South Africa, Africa and Cape Town, whether they understand the power of God in nature, and they will tell you, we understand it. Oh, if only God would allow it to rain. The point is, God has the power to take away what you assume you will always have. The Assyrian army thought they would always be the number one force of the ancient world. And God says, I have the power to shut up the rain, I have the power to cause earthquake and move mountains, and I'm certainly powerful enough to punish the king of Assyria. Just because he doesn't seem to be acting doesn't mean his power is diminished at all. And my friends, this brings up a very important applicational question. You see, a lot of Christians today believe that as they sin, as long as God doesn't punish them, Maybe God doesn't care. And so I will continue to do what I'm doing in sin. Because as long as God doesn't punish me, it's okay. He doesn't care. He's too busy dealing with the big sin. My friends, you should be scared. Because our God is slow to anger, but He's great in power. And so be careful. Don't play that game. It is a dangerous game. It is a game of Russian roulette when you play that game of when God will act. 
He is patient, but His patience wears thin when you sin. And you should not be surprised when God's hand of wrath and anger is upon your life to correct you from your sin. Don't be surprised when that happens. He is patient, but He hates sin. And His power to deal with it is severe. The third question implied, well actually not even implied, it's written right there in verse 6. Let me read it first. Who can stand before His indignation and who can endure the fierceness of His anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by Him. Here is the third question. Number three, can anyone stand up to God? Can anyone stand up to God? And the answer is no one. No one can stand up to God. If I were to ask you this morning, can any of you stand up to God? You would all tell me no. God is omnipotent. We cannot stand up to Him. Now let me ask you a question. Then why do you live your life as if you can't stand up to God? Why do you live your life as if you can stand up to God? You say, no, I don't do that. Oh, yes, you do. We all do. You see, the way we think about life, God, you have your opinion, I have my opinion. And your opinion and my opinion are on the same level. God, you have your will, I have my will. And our wills are equally as important. So let's, Lord, let's discuss what you want me to do. My friends, that's not the way it should be. If you acknowledge that no one can stand up to God, what in the world are we doing standing up to Him every day? You see, the point of verse 6 is, who can endure the fierceness of His anger? If God pours out His anger upon you, you and I won't live. No one can stand up to Him. You know, the Assyrians should have learned their lesson. Years ago, one night, God wiped out the entire Assyrian army, 2 Kings chapter 18, at the time of King Hezekiah. But they still didn't learn their lesson. I guess they needed God to remind them again that no one can stand up to God. Why do we stand up to God? We stand up to God because we think we can. And that's the truth. You want to see a picture of this? Look at parents dealing with their children. If you are parents to small children, there will come to a point when they're no longer cute. Well, they'll always be cute, but they won't be as cute as they used to be because they will now begin to assert their rights, these little three, four, five-year, six-year-olds. And they will assert that they are on equal footing with you. Now, how do we put them in their place? Our voices get louder. Our physical action through spanking occurs. We tell them, no, you and I, we are not on the same level. You are my child. I am your parent. Let me show you. And usually, a smart little child will pull back and realize, okay, they have power over me. Well, the problem is when these little kids become teenagers. And they hit puberty and they get taller. They maybe get taller than you. Somehow they found their vocal cords, vocal cords, and they begin to answer back. And they want to assert their power. 
and you yell at them and you raise your voice and guess what? They do the same. You can't threaten them with physical pain anymore. Why? Because they are bigger than you. And that's why teenagers and their parents have shouting matches. A test of the will to see who will stand up to who. Now you parents, the power is still in your hands. You forget the power that you have, the power of money and the power of house. But the problem is you love your child too much, you never really threaten it. But imagine when a parent threatens and says, you want to stand up to me? I'm going to take away your allowance. I'm going to kick you out of the house and really mean it? Let me tell you, those teenagers will back down if they're smart. As it relates to God, we do the same thing. We tell God, well, God, this is who I am. These are my rights. And we forget that in the hands of God, He holds within His power the power to take away all of our money, the power to take away our house, the power to take away His blessings, and the power to take away our life. With a snap of the finger, we would fall dead where we are. And that's the truth. How dare we stand up to God? And yet we still do. As frustrating as it is to tell a teenager not to stand up to their parents and their authority, who are we in our right to stand up before holy God? Don't you forget that. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of His anger? That's what the Bible tells us. So, do we live in fear? No. But it's a reminder that we are not to demand of God anything. It's a reminder of our place in the relationship between God and us. It is to remind us that we are not to be too proud. It is to remind us that we are to keep humble. Look throughout history. All those who have stood against God have all fallen. Do you know of anyone who's conquered death? No, only one person, Jesus Christ, God Himself. That means none of us, no one can stand up to Him. Not even Satan in the demonic realm, the Bible tells us, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. So that, so that then begs the question, which side do we choose? If the world and nothing in the world can stand up to God, it is a wonderment that men and women still choose to side with the world. Perhaps it's because we don't think too much about the greatness and the awesomeness of God that we choose the world. Because the more you think about Him, the more you think about what He can do, the more you will closely align with Him Because no one can stand up to Him. This is a message our generation needs to hear. It is a message our generation needs to understand and comprehend. No one can stand up to God. So if God is rightfully angry and has absolute power with no one able to stand up to Him, I'm kind of scared of Him. How can I love Him? How can I even approach Him? 
Thankfully, there is verse 7 and 8. Look with me. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who trust in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue His enemies. It's almost like when we read verse 7, there is a big sigh of relief. Whew! An assuring calm when you read that not only is God angry and vengeful rightfully, He is also good. And He is good to those, the Bible says, who trust in Him, who seek Him out as a refuge. Those who wish to stand up against Him, like the Assyrians, should be scared at the omnipotence of God. But one who is in relationship with Him has nothing to be afraid of. In fact, the book of Hebrew tells us, come boldly before the very throne room of grace. Because under His protection, we will find, look what the Bible says, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Today in the world, what is the strongest, most secure place? It would probably still be at Fort Knox in Kentucky. Fort Knox uh, is known as the place where they hold the U.S. gold repository. Almost $150 billion worth of gold. 5,000 tons of other precious metals behind a 22-ton door. The combination to open this 22-ton door has been disseminated to 10 different people. Each person only has part of that code. No one person knows the entire code to open the 22-ton door. The code has to be inputted one person at a time. Behind these doors are what America believes is the strongest and safest place in the world. Now, if you're even crafty enough to get the code from the 10 people and break in, you wouldn't get very far because you'd have to get past armed guards, missiles, tanks, Apache helicopters, infrared surveillance, video cameras, concrete reinforced granite walls, which can withstand a nuclear blast. And if you are going to break in, you're not going to get out. In fact, it was so secure that during World War II, Fort Knox had the privilege of housing some of the most precious documents in the world, the Magna Carta, the Gutenberg Bible. In fact, the English family even sent the crown jewels to America for safekeeping during the war. The National Reserves of other European countries were also sent there. But the Bible says, stronger than that is in a Lord that is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. You and I can securely place our trust in a God who is good. A stronghold in the day of our trouble. Let me ask you something. How does that correlate to a God that is angry and furious? If you were going to hire a bodyguard, let's say you had a need for bodyguards, and you were to hire a bodyguard, or bodyguards, plural. What type of people would you hire? Would you hire as your bodyguard really, really nice people, always with a smile, real gentle? No, you would be crazy to hire people like that. If you're going to hire bodyguards, you want people that are six foot four, 300 pounds, and they have the meanest face. You want men, usually, who are very strong, Take no nonsense, because if you have someone too nice, if someone wants to approach you, they say, oh, you go right ahead. 
You don't want a bodyguard like that. You want a bodyguard who's going to keep people away, right? Now, I want you to think about this. If we're going to place our lives in the stronghold of the Lord, who is a good God to those who trust Him, I want a God who is very angry and vicious and ferocious against those who are His enemies, who are my enemies. Does that make sense? I want God to be very angry with them and deal with them as He desires to protect me. That's why the Bible tells us He is a good God. But don't forget the first part. He is an angry God, a ferocious God who guards us. I wonder sometimes if C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, who in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, almost seems to lift and take his imagery from the book of Nahum. If you're unfamiliar with the Chronicles of Narnia, I encourage your children to read this. I read it many, many times. It talks about uh, four children, poor, pensive children who goes into the magical kingdom of Narnia. And there, writing an allegory, is Aslan, the lion, who represents Jesus. The children had never met Aslan, the great lion, and so they're wondering what he's like. And Susan, one of the girls in the story, says, Is he safe? I should feel rather nervous in meeting a lion when it was revealed to her that Aslan was a lion. And her friend says to her, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan, the lion, without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. One of the other sisters said, well, then he isn't safe, is he? The friend replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that line. He isn't safe, but he is good. My friends, our generation today needs to understand this about God. He is one who is a friend, but he is one to be respected. When we come before God, it should be with trembling and fear that we come to the worship of God. He will invite us to come because of Jesus Christ boldly to his throne, but there must be a healthy respect of God. We know that God is a good heart, but He is also the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And it is because we have forgotten to approach God with reverence and respect that we take Him so lightly. And we no longer have a very high view of God, we have a very low view of God. It somehow has worked into our culture in this generation that somehow because Jesus is a friend, that we equate his friendship with like how we treat our friends. So when we, we meet a friend, we put our hands around our friend and say, hey, buddy, what's up? And so we treat God in the same way. Hey, Godie, what's up? That's how we treat him. We can't ever imagine that when we come before God, whether in private prayer in quiet time, or in the worship of God corporately, that we come with trembling and fear because of who He is and what He's able to do. Oh, but He's just a friend. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if I come late. 
He doesn't care if I don't pay attention. He doesn't care if I talk to the service. He doesn't care if I participate because he's a friend. He will understand. Our actions are derived from how we view God. Can you imagine if you, by chance, happened to see Queen Elizabeth II of England, that you would go up to her, if you could, put your hands around her and say, Hey, Queenie, how's it going? Can you even imagine? You couldn't imagine doing that. He's not even your sovereign. Apparently what I read, even within her own family, she's not that warm and fuzzy type of grandmother. Even her children, her grandchildren pay her respect as the sovereign monarch. How dare we think that we somehow are on equal footing with the sovereign God of heaven that we could treat Him the way we do, and yet we do. He isn't safe, but He is good. And that is the tension you and I need to live with to understand that He is a friend closer than a brother, but He is still the Lord God. And that respect and that honor is still due His name. The end of verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Note it does not say that God is good to those who rightfully deserve his punishment and wrath. Verse 8 reminds us, brings us back to Nahum's prophecy against the nation of Assyria, that one day God will overthrow them, and he will do so using the Babylonians. But he will pursue his enemies. He's only good to those who trust him. Those who are his enemies will not get away with it. He isn't safe, but he's good. So as you begin to understand how a good God can be rightfully wrathful, I hope you will leave this place with two takeaways personally. That you are now put on notice, as I'm put on notice, that if we are living in sin just because God has acted with impunity immediately, doesn't mean He is allowing sin in our life. We should be scared. We should move away from sin and towards God. But you know, we should also serve as a message of comfort as we walk away. The comfort of knowing that if we trust Him, there is no safer place to be under the shelter of His wings, to find rest in a God who will take on our enemies for us. As we cling to a good God, a stronghold in time of protection, He will fight our battles for us because He is rightfully wrathful. And for that, we thank Him. May those lessons and others that the Spirit leads in your heart be the lesson you live out this week until the day we see Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for a balanced view of who God is. Sometimes we take you for granted. Sometimes we don't care much about who you are because we're not thinking about you. But thank you for the book of Nahum, which reveals simply the amazing power 
of who you are and what you can do. May each of us in our hearts fall on our knees because we can't stand up to you. We are not equal to you. We cannot demand of you. Your ways and your will are far better than ours. Are we even in a position to suggest, much less demand? Correct our hearts, correct our attitudes, that we may love a God with more passion and more joy, knowing that for those who trust Him, we can find great security in the one who will protect us and fight our battles for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.